We're on the 15th chapter. That's where we have to move fast. But there's still some things that are important to note. We start out on 1st Nephi. And <clears throat> we start out with the last place to look if you want to find out information. Notice it starts out, <clears throat> I returned to the tent of my father. It is warm in here. I've got to be immodest. Let me get rid of that. Also. And finds his brethren disputing. Well, it won't be the first time in history. And, uh, and, uh, then what is the answer to the question? But they never bothered to look. They did not look unto the Lord as they ought. He says in the third verse here. See, have you asked for it? Don't expect blessings from the Lord unless you ask. And so he says here, they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. And I was grieved because I knew the things which had hap must unavoidably happen, he says. He was, he'd seen certain things that must happen. Notice that word unavoidably is a hard one, isn't it? Isn't it supposed to be all conditioned or so forth? Because of the great wickedness of your children. Why unavoidably? Well, you know the unavoidable play is determined by the actors. As we said before, a man's character is his fate. In the old comedy of Menander, and then taken over by Plotus uh, and Tullus, uh, the, uh, the uh, whole plot was always determined by the actors. I mean, if you have a rich old miser who has a beautiful daughter and an impoverished young man who is wooing her and a clever servant, you know exactly what's going to happen. And all the characters were standard, and they all wore standard colored wigs to wit know which one they were. The rascally servant wore a red rig, wig. And the daughter naturally was a blonde. The old man was naturally bald. And the, and the young man was naturally black and curly. And of course, he had a friend. And of course, the same thing. Shakespeare uses the plot. Everybody uses that plot. But the thing is, the play is unavoidably predictable once you set the characters up, and it's so with all sorts of things. You get the ship of fools, uh, uh, another famous theme. You put several characters together on a ship, or the, the lifeboat theme. You know what's going to happen if you, if you put one type of guy and another to guy uh, alone in the lifeboat. There's going to be real trouble and so forth, certain types, depending on the types. Or, or put uh, a number of different animals in the cage and how they react depends on the type of animals they are. You can, you can predict the reactions pretty well. So he says here, these things must unavoidable happen. What is the situation he saw? Well, because he says it was because of the great wickedness of the children of men. So a man who is, is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And he is worried sick about it. Notice he says in the fifth verse here, so we're going to have to move on here. Uh, he had to re I was overcome because of my afflictions. It was just too much. They kept pouring it on. Notice they blame him for everything. And again, it's, it's interesting that they have a character in which they can do that, and they'll take it out on him. That's the theme of Boots. Boots is a theme that runs through all the old Norse literature, and it's, it's very predominant. Uh, Sir George Dasson wrote a book on it, collected the stories of Boots. Boots is a Cinderella story. The, the two sisters, Layman and Lemuel, you see, and they're taking it out on Cinderella. Um, because of hidden jealousy motives, and, and uh, but of course, nothing to be jealous about Cinderella. But when you, Boots is, of course, the third son and the youngest. He's called Boots because he has to clean everybody's shoes, and he's made the he's made the butt of everything, and he has to wait on the other two. And of course, it turns out that he's the prince in the end, and he triumphs. And this is the Boots motif, which B O O T S Boots, because he he cleans the boots, and this is the boots, and they this is bound to happen. 
And they said to him, they used this excuse, we can't understand our father has spoken to us concerning the natural branches. And then the eighth verse here, well, have you inquired of the Lord? No, we haven't tried because it wouldn't work if we did. And so uh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the old woman who prays that the hill might be removed from behind her house. She doesn't like it there. In the morning she gets up and looks out of the window. Oh, I knew it wouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't move. It wouldn't move anyway. She knew it wouldn't. Well, that's her faith. But then, don't make uh, such a prize too cheap. He says to them, you don't just ask the Lord. You have to do these notices in the 11th first thing you have to do. First, don't harden your hearts as they had. Make up your minds already. Then secondly, you shall ask me in faith. First you ask, then you ask in faith, believing that you shall receive. And then you have to have diligence in keeping the commandments dependent on it. Then surely these things shall be made known unto you. That's a routine very few people are willing to go through. Remember in the ninth section of Doctrine and Covenants, 9, 7, and 8, where the Lord tells Oliver Cowdery, you thought all you'd have to do was ask, but no, you have to get the best answer you can yourself. Work it out in your own mind first. Do the best solution you can, the best job you can on your own, and then ask me if it's all right. And if it's not all right, you'll, you'll blank out on that subject. You'll have a, a numbness of spirit. And uh, I'll let you know whether it's right or not. So you have to do the work, and then you check with him. Is what you do. And this is a nice way to do it. Let him ask of God. Well, again, you see how the gospel started out. Joseph Smith reading in James. If any of you lack wisdom, what do you do? Let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. Well, that's something else. If you're going to ask that way, uh, I won't play then. I have to believe it already. That St. Augustine wouldn't do that. You see, if I ask, he starts out his confession by saying, if I ask God whether he lives, then I assume that he does, and I'm cheating. You see, I shouldn't do that. Uh, so, we have to hurry on here. And then they talk about the, the plasticity of the olive tree. That's referred to a great deal later on. So we'll skip the olive tree right now and the, and the things it does and the things it stands for and go to the process that's working among the Gentiles. Our Father hath not spoken of our seed alone, but of all the house of Israel, pointing to the covenant to be fulfilled in the latter days. Those are the temple ordinances made now. And the restoration of the Jews in the latter days. Isaiah spoke of the Jews and the house of Israel should no more be confounded, that means mixed up, and they, the brothers were pacified. And then they started asking about the tree. Uh, oh well, uh, the 17th verse here, you notice here, this is a very important thing. He wants the Gentiles to be in on it too, not just Israel. What our Father meaneth, meaneth that it will not come to pass until after they are scattered by the Gentiles, and he meaneth that it shall come by way of the Gentiles, that the Lord may show his power unto the Gentiles. The Lord's going to show his power to the Gentiles too. They've got to be in on the act. They're important theme. Nobody gets left out. <coughs> then we come to the tree. Well, and it's explained briefly, you know what it is. The tree is the objective. It's the fruit. It's the life. It saves you. It's the tree of life. And the iron rod is the means you get to it. If you cling to that, consistent, hang on, keep walking and so forth, and don't let go, that's good. The, uh, the river, which turns out to be filthy water, that's the alternative. If you don't go to the tree, if you don't make the effort, you'll, the water will catch you. If you don't hang to the iron rod, you'll get lost in the filthy water, swept away as so many people were in those days. And the awful gulf awful gulf between those on either side, that's the penalty. If you don't make the effort, if you don't end up, you'll end up on one side or the other. 
And the penalty for making no effort at all, of course, is to be on the other side. That awful gulf, that's a real thing. See, we don't compromise here. In this life, nobody is on one side of the gulf or the other. You know, Nobody is safe home. You can always sin. Everybody can. We, and Nephi is going to make that very clear later on. And on the other hand, nobody's completely damned because it's never too late to repent as long as you're in the flesh. So we're all in between now and making our choice one way or the other. The worst thing you can do is to assume that you've arrived on one side and your enemy is on the other side, that you're the good guy and he's the bad guy. The whole Book of Mormon is to keep us in between, in this in-between state where we are now. We're sort of balanced there. Uh, and we find it harrowing and difficult, and that's the whole thing. We're supposed to be enjoying that, uh, the excitement of it. And then we're told in the side of the tree and so forth that a division is necessary in the 30th verse. This idea of a division came to pass that to go forth among the top of the mountain. Oops, this is the, the uh, 15th, yes, 15th, and uh, where he talks about the, uh, yes, the awful gulf that divides the wicked from the tree of life and also from the saints of God. It's between them. And that's the awful hell and so forth. And it doth mean the torment of the body. And this is both, it isn't just allegorical. This isn't just spiritual. This thing is physical as well. You suffer physically in these things. You work mentally, but you also go through physical anguish and, and physical pain. This means that the torment of bodies in the days of probation, that's now the days of probation. Or doth it mean the final state of the soul? And he says it means both, next verse. Represents both temporal and spiritual. There's no spiritual argument that wasn't temporal and vice versa. The temporal body in these things which were done, the works done, in the body right now during the days of probation. This is the days when we are envied of the angels because we can choose the one and the other. And their state is fixed for a time to come at any rate. And there is a final state when you stand before God and be judged of their works. And if they're filthy, they'll be filthy still. You can't just say, I'm born again, and that takes care of that. No unclean can enter the kingdom of God, therefore there must needs be a place of filthiness prepared for them. So there are places for this in a final state or dwell, and the wicked are rejected. That's it. Well, whether they have other chances or not, let us go on to the next verse where he continues to preach. And you notice, uh, he says to, to Nephi, uh, they say, Behold, thou hast declared unto us hard things more than we are able to understand. We don't like to admit this. You see, why should the struggle of life not be so be so hard? Or why should it not be hard when so much depends on it and so forth? The interesting thing is, and we find out from Nephi very, very soon, that all preaching is to yourself. You're preaching to nobody but yourself. If I preach, I preach only to myself. You can see how, uh, how that is here. Others may pick it up as far as that goes. That's like teaching you point, and that's all you do. You, you can't teach a person. That's not a, that's, uh, not a transitive verb. You might hit a person, uh, or you might see a person, but you, you can't teach a person what you do when you teach a person. Well, teach the word is teach is touch, dactyl, didactic. That's when you point to something. See, you're dactyl is a finger, didactyl. Teach is the same word as touch. It just means point the finger. All I can do is point. And you look, and then you see for yourself, you see. But I don't go directly from one person to another that way. So the teacher is, is just didactic, and he teaches, and, uh, and he points. So others may pick it up, and uh, he goes on preaching, too. And later on, you see, he tells us in the second Nephi, it's just himself he's been talking to all along anyway. I knew that I'd uh, spoken hard things against them, and that the guilty taketh the truth to be hard. 
If you're righteous, he said, you wouldn't murmur. You'd face the truth. They did, we hear a lot of this non, this talk today, don't we? Uh, they did humble themselves. I had joy and great hopes for them. They were to be dashed all right. And so it was a settle. It was a settlement, and the tent was a settlement. You notice, went back to the tent in the valley of Lemuel. The father had been living there a long time now, and they got married there. He married the daughters of Ishmael. Nephi took one of the daughters of Ishmael. They all intermarried with the Arab family, and Zoram also married the eldest daughter of Ishmael. That shows he was more advanced in age than some of the others. And then finally the time had come to move. They'd been there a long time, and the Lord ordered them to move. That night he got the commandment. The, the orders came through on the morrow that he should take his journey into the wilderness. Now it is the Rehla, as the Arabs say. The Rehla Beni Halal, the best parallel to Abraham in the, in the, could have brought it along. The Abraham in the wilderness, Abraham, Lehi in the wilderness is the Rehla Beni Halal. The Beni Halal were a tribe uh, way back in pre-Islamic times who wandered, they wandered clear from Central Asia way over to Morocco, as a matter of fact, looking for a place to settle. And they went by night so people wouldn't see them and they couldn't build fires. They were constantly hiding and they were suffering greatly for lack of food, same as Nephi's company. He tells us, remember, we didn't build fires. The Lord said, I'll be your light by night. So we didn't cook our food much. He says, we ate raw food. Well, the Beni Halal tells you all those things, but the Rehla means, the title is Rehla Beni Halal, that means the setting forth on the journey, the pulling up of the stakes, the getting going, because they were always going, and, and the name of Abraham, of course, the books bearing the name of Abraham, the title is always the Lech Lecha, means get up and get going, Lech Lecha. So Abraham is the one who gets up and gets going. He's always moving from place to place, so he never settles, he never has a land of his own. And he was the first Hebrew, which means a person from the beyond, an uprooted person, a wandering person, and so forth. And as we're told in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Now, so they marry the wives, and he's ordered to move. And now he finds the Leahona in front of his tent. In 1961, uh, this writing of, of Fads, do I have it here? Yeah, here it is. I had an article in the Ensign on this sort of thing. The, it, it's, I'm looking at the Fads book here. Kappa, gee, there's a lot of sources on this. But this new book had just come out and it really helps out here. And that's the writing of uh, Professor Fad. Well, anyway, just, to, just a, a few notes from this. The, uh, we sum up here, lots is said about, a good deal is said about the Liahona in the Book of Mormon. I'm not gonna give it all here, just this summary. First, the Liahona was a gift from God and the manner of its delivery caused great astonishment. It was just found in front of his tent the next morning. Second, it was neither mechanical nor self-operating. It was not a mechanism. It worked solely by the power of God and solely according to their faith. So it wasn't magic. A magical thing would work by itself. Thirdly, it only worked in response to faith, that's it. Diligence and the heed of those who followed it. And fourth, yet there was something ordinary and familiar about it. It was called the small means by which God worked. It was not a mysterious, untouchable object. They call it but a temporal thing. So ordinary that there was a constant tendency of Lehi's family simply to ignore it. They wouldn't pay attention to it, whether it worked or not. According to Alma, their needless year-long wanderings in the desert because of the fact they ignored it most of the time. Then, fifth, the working parts of the device were two spindles or pointers in a case, in a globe. 
and these special writings would on these special writings would appear from time to time, clarifying and amplifying the message of the pointers. And remember, Lehi was terrified when he saw the writing on the ones. Told him about these things. The specific purpose of the traversing indicators was to point the way they should go. Eighth, the pointers were mounted in a brass sphere whose marvelous workmanship excited the wonder and admiration because instructions sometimes appeared on this ball, too. And the device was referred to descriptively as a ball, functionally as an indicator, and in both senses it's called a compass in the Liahona. On occasion, it saved Lehi's people from perishing by land and sea, we're told. If they would but look on it, they might live. And then 11th, it was preserved for a wise purpose long after it had ceased to function. It was a museum piece. Then prepared specifically to guide Lehi's party to the promised land. It was a type and a shadow, he tells us, of man's relationship to God during this earthly passage. Now, we're not going to Alma's description here, but uh, the... Going to that one. Here we are. Yes, here. Time to turn to Fod's new study of bellomancy. Bellomancy, a bellows is to throw anything, a ball, so anything you throw is done. Bellomancy is to divine or tell fortunes by throwing rods or sticks or jack straws or things like that. Bellomancy is the practice of divination by shooting, tossing, shaking, or otherwise manipulating. <coughs> Excuse me rods, darts, pointers, or other sticks, <clears throat> all originally derived from arrows. Over 10 years ago, I had written a, a writing, a long writing, <clears throat> not so long after all, on the arrow of the hunter and the state in which I'd used the technique of arrow divination in an early time. It was read by every major uh, anthropologist in the country before it was published, after they'd all approved it. So it was a good article. And now Fod has unearthed this evidence. Now he begins by pointing out that arrows used in divination were called kiv or zalam. And I guess I should write it on the board. Kiv zalam is a common one. It's very interesting. It's an ancient word which he practically discovered. Zalam and the other one is a kiv. The Arabs don't, don't put a U after the Q, you see, is the kiv. It was called kiv or zalam, this, this arrow was. And they didn't have heads or feathers on them. They had been removed. They were just uh, spindles, was what they were, shafts or pointers. And Lane's Dictionary, which in many volumes, it, it goes into the usual spiel about what a zalam is. Zalam, plural zalam, means divining. Quote, arrows by means of which Arabs in the time of ignorance, that is before Islam, sought to know what was allotted to them. They were arrows upon which the Arabs in time of ignorance wrote command or prohibition. One of them said go and the other has said start. Uh, or upon some of which was written, my Lord hath commanded me, and upon the other one, my Lord hath forbidden me. Or there were three arrows, he's quoting from various Arabic writers here, or there were three arrows upon which one was written, my Lord hath commanded me, etc., and the third was a blank. And they put them in a receptacle and took forth an arrow, and if the arrow upon which command came forth, then they went on to accomplish his purpose. But if that upon which prohibition was written that came forth, he refrained. And if the blank came forth, they shuffled a second time, went over again. That's the joke, you see. And these belonged, these, uh, the Zilam were arrows that belonged to the Quraysh. Now, it's very interesting that in the Pearl of Great Price, uh, one of the figures representing the four tribes under the, under the couch there, the four quarters of the earth, as they're told in uh, figure two, uh, in fact, similarly two figure six, uh, 
it represents the tribe of Quraysh, which was existing at a very early time, the Quraysh. It's the oldest tribe. It's the tribe of Muhammad. It's, it's the tribe, you know. And uh, they belonged especially to the Quraysh. Uh, and upon them were written, He hath commanded, and he hath forbidden, and do thou, and do thou not. They are, have been well shaped, and evenly, and made even, and placed in the Kaaba, the holy shrine of Mecca. And when a man desired to go on a journey or marry, he came to the priest, and he said, Take thou forth for me Zalam. And thereupon he would take it forth and look at it. There were seven arrows thus called, with the minister of the Kaaba having marks on them, used for this purpose. Sometimes there were the man used two such arrows, which he put into a sword case, and when he desired to seek knowledge of what was allotted to them, he took forth one of them. But why arrows? Because, as we've shown elsewhere, the shooting of arrows is a universal form of divination. Quote again, as is evident in the prayers and legendary heroes of the steppe, the Finnish, the Norse, the Russian, the Kazakh, the Turkish, the Yakut, they address to their three enchanted arrows. Before you reach them, when you shoot the arrow, you, you breathe on it, a prayer. The Indians still do, and then you shoot it. And it's a, it's a miraculous thing. It will, it will seek out what you want, and it will show you the way to go. They use it in divination just as, they do, as much as they do in hunting to show what you're supposed to do. Well, that's a very old background and so forth, because the arrow possesses an uncanny power. It can kill at a distance. And it can give you a claim to the thing you shot at, if it, if it has your marks on it. The consultation of the arrows to one about marrying was according the regular Jewish practice, too. The parties concerned would throw rods in the air, reading their message by the manner of their fall. And Gaster says, this is tantamount to the shooting of arrows. Other substitutes for the shooting were shaking or drawing from a bag or quiver, balancing on the finger or spinning like a pivot like this. Which way does it point? And so the Gato Pipe is possibility of all Indian dice games where you go into the New World version of this here, uh, where it's tossed or shot into the ground, and the way it falls is the way you have to say, that still, that still survives in that dangerous game of long arrow or something. They have, you know, where you throw, you throw the arrows and they're supposed to land in a ring? That's supposed to be the old form of divinations, a murderous practice. Well, the Babylonians had the same thing, etc., etc., blah, blah, here. Then we go on. Uh, all this shaking and tossing and shooting emphasis, divinary offices, pointers, but along with that, they're also conveyed their message by the writing that was on them. Fahad notes that on arrows, words were inscribed determining the object of the cleromantic consultation. Whenever divinations are described, they're invariably found to have writing on them, like the Zuni word-painted arrows of destiny. The Zuni only arrows used a great deal by the Indians with their painting on them and their symbols. They tell fortunes by them, of course. The Arab proverb for know thyself is look at the mark upon your arrow, upon your, your kid, your divination arrow. Awasim is a mark, usually you put it on your camel, it's the mark for, see when they were illiterate they had their marks. And so it was a brand you put on your camel, it was a mark you put on your arrow, so when you shot something, you could claim the thing that was shot because there was your mark. See? And uh, so it says, absir wasma, your wasim kidika. Literally examine the mark on thy arrow. And so, the word for divination arrow, the other in the proverb was kiv, defined by Lane as one of two arrows used in sortilege by Lane. The, the kiv is the one of two arrows. The original natural number of arrows used in divination seems to have been two. Even when the magic three were used, the third was usually a dud, a blank, which was a blank to which no lot was assigned except shake him again, try another fate. It's the other two that do the work. Oh, the Persian king with his barrisman, the Jews draw the three box-word lots to choose the scapegoat. But the Talmud says there were only two lots, and they were not of boxwood or gold, of boxwood or gold. 
Now, the reason for the two basic staves is the apparent from their normal designation as command and prohibition. To this, the priest at some shrines would add a third arrow called the expectative, or wait and see. See, let's do it again. But the original arrangement was that of two arrows designated advisability or inadvisability of a journey. They were designed as the suffer, which means go ahead. Our word safari comes from that. Suffer, proceed on the journey. And the other as chadr, or stay put where you are. So you see uh, from Lane, it's clear that the resultant, that the regular consultation of the arrows were those who faced with travel problems. All the others were secondary. The patron of the caravans of the Hejaz, from time immemorial, was the archer god Abgal, the lord of omens, in his capacity as master of the arrows of divination. The inscription on the arrows themselves gave a top priority to travels, typical examples from various systems, which employed two all the way to, from two to ten hours. Go slow, bata, drag your feet. Speed up, sari, hurry. Water, you want, that's what you want. It just says water on it and so forth. Or stay where you are, or get moving, or you are in the clear. So it would be an obtuse reader who didn't spell out for him, the, had to spell out for him the resemblance between the ancient arrow divination and the Liahona. Quote, two spindles or pointers bearing written instructions providing superhuman guidance for the traveler in the desert. What more could you want? <laughs> what is the relationship of them? Well, I don't know whether we need to go into that at all, but you see, we're dealing with a familiar thing here. On this, the Book of Mormon is remarkably specific. Both Nephi and Alma go out of their way to insist that the Liahona did not work itself. It was not a magic thing, but worked only by the power of God and so forth. And he used it to steer his ships and so forth, and he called it a compass. Uh, well, it goes on and on. And the use of the word company, that's a complete one too. So, anyway, we had this. Oh, incidentally, that is, uh, that's, uh, you can find that article, make quite an observe, in the era for February 1961, pages 87 following. Improvement era, 1961. And, uh, but it's an interesting thing that uh, here we have Joseph Smith inventing the divination errors of the Liahona. And many people have dealt with the words Liahona. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Shinari, we had a, a teacher from Hebrew University here for some years. In fact, he bought a house in Provo. He was so fond of him, he wanted to come and visit often. And uh, his name was Shinari. And the first thing that fascinated him, he, n he never joined the church or anything like that. But the first thing that fascinated him was this name Liahona. And he traced it back to the queen bee, the leader of bees swarming in the desert. When bees swarm, that's Liahona. You see, they follow one in the desert. I took it from a different one. Liahona, Liah, Yah, of course, is God, Jehovah. Liah means the possessor. To God is the guidance, Hona. To God is the guidance, Liahona. That's just a guess. Don't put it down, but it's, it's a pretty good guess anyway. Uh, and they, uh, so we go down here. 16th chapter, let's get going here. And then we come to the, oh, well, this is an interesting thing, too. The, uh, the very next verse, the seed of every kind, we went, take our journey in nearly a south-southwest, a south-southeast direction from that time forth. We did pitch our tent in a place called Shazer, and that's an interesting one. We've got to put that one down, don't we? Uh, what is, well, it's not like this kid. But this is just a Shajar. Shajar is a clump of trees. Oh, it's pronounced Shazer, of course. Shazer. It's called a clump of group of trees in the desert. Well, naturally, the place they would park next would be where there were some trees and water and so forth. 
So we camped in a place called Shazer, called The Trees. Lots going cheap, let's see now. And here they went, as we said before, down, and Joseph Smith said, when they turned nearly east, nearly straight east, fine, that'd be good if you know that. When they turned nearly straight east, it was at the 19th parallel, and here's the 19th. And of course, this would take them out at the Kara Mountains, where you find trees. This is the standard shipbuilding place from ancient times in, uh, in Arabia, because they could find trees there, special type of trees for ships, very good, very big. I have this book of Hilton's here on that just in a minute. So they come to Bountiful, they turn here. Now here is, uh, I want to point this here. This is Mecca near the coast and this is Medina because something happens along here. They're going in these mountains. These mountains are considerable all the way. They get here down and uh, this is Saba down here. They cut clear of this. See, this was a, this was a rich kingdom at that time. It just show those skyscrapers. They knew about the skyscrapers. They were down here. This is where uh, Jasim and uh, Shibam and the great skyscraper cities are all down here in the Hadramaut. And so, we have them going on. We may refer to this later. I don't know. See about it. I'll do that later. Go on. Now, and the, uh, notice at a place called Shazer. They go forth again in the same direction to the four fertile parts of the world wilderness, which were in the borders near the Red Sea, and we had those, those uh, pictures of the, the rivers, the underground rivers that flow along there, and make more fertile parts of the wilderness where you get the rimph. I don't have one of those now, so we'll let that can go. And say, we can't, we can't linger on the antiquities, but I think they give a very good backup uh, to the lessons that follow. I mean, you could say the preaching was just Joseph Smith preaching, and no an angel had nothing to do with it. But when you get a record as full and as vivid as this, there's, there's something going on. Now his bow. They followed the ball in the more fertile parts of the wilderness near the Red Sea. And his bow was made of fine steel, and I'd break my bow. In Palestine, from time immemorial, they only used composite bows. They did not have the complete. That's why they considered it a miracle when, when, Lehi, uh, when Nephi made his bow. The composite bow, you know, has a handle of, of ivory or wood, and then it goes back like that. And uh, and well, you see in the drawing, it goes clear forward like this. Then you have to turn it way back to get it, get plenty of draw in it. But it goes back like this when it's beautiful bow, when it's drawn like that. You see, uh, but actually, if you if you unstring it, then the then the metal part and the metal parts they were of bronze, which doesn't spring like steel. But steel is the best. And now it's a thing that's known, just of recent years, that steel is as early known as anything at all. And for an obvious reason, steel is a mixture of iron and carbon when you start making, if you're, if you're using coal or wood or anything else and you have to get an awful high temperature, you're going to get carbon mixed in with it and uh, won't make it won't uh, make inferior iron, sometimes it'll make good steel. But anyway, we know they had it, had those pictures of uh, King Tut's from five, 700 years before, his beautiful steel dagger and so forth. No, but they had steel bows, and they only used composite bows, which, you, which were metal. You could use metal. See, this part was bone, ivory, or wood. You could put it in here, and uh, it wasn't so demanding. You see, you could, uh, you could replace parts and so forth, but he broke his steel bow, and that was bad, and it meant the family was going to starve because everybody depended on it. Now, Saxton Pope, in his classical work called Hunting with the Bow and Arrow, says the average bow is worth uh, 100,000 shots. After that, it loses its spring. You can't use it anymore. So Lehi, who seemed to be a very capable fellow, must have been using his bow for years. But anyway, it, it, it says their bows had lost their springs. 
And that would happen. Notice in the 27, 21st verse, the loss of my bow and their bows having lost their springs. And as a result of this, they're very hungry. He returns without food. They did suffer much. And now what happens? Notice the 20th verse. Now who is righteous? Who has a perfect faith? This is the nadir in their travels, you see. And also my father began to murmur against the Lord his God. Lehi himself, you see. Yea, and they were all exceeding sorrowful, even that they did murmur against the Lord. They were all murmuring against the Lord, not just Laman and Lemuel, but Lehi himself. We've got to watch these things. And then they'd lost their spring. So it came to pass he did make, oh, I need the map after all. He did make out of wood a bow and a straight stick and an arrow, and therefore I did arm myself. And I asked the, he asked the Liahona where he'd go to find, where he'd go to find, uh, game, and he found it in the right place. That's the looking in the wrong place. The reason I noticed Mecca Medina there is along the coast here, there was a, a German baron called Julius Oiting who wrote a classic work on, he wanted to hunt, he hunted everywhere, and he found very good hunting. The only place in Arabia where you could, well, you just find very good hunting in the mountains along here, especially Mount Jashem and Mount Odds. Well, they're important because they're the only places in Arabia where you can find knob wood. Knob wood is wood for bows. It makes excellent bows, but it is exceedingly rare, and it's only found in the mountains right along here, and this is where they would have been at that time. He says, keeping in the mountains in the, near the Red Sea and so forth, and they came here and they lost their springs and all that. So this, we don't know where, where they were exactly, but around the same area where you find the bow wood at Mount Jasmine and Mount Adj, you also find very rich game, oryxes, mountain goats, everything you can imagine uh, at the tops of the mountains. Of course, those creatures live up high. They don't live down, down in the desert. Though uh, the other day, a Rocky Mountain sheep was seen just in the hills just north of Mesquite, of all places. I don't know whether it got lost or not, but the uh, so there was a place where he went to hunt. He says, well, the way he says it here, I did make a bow out of a straight stick. That would be, and out of a straight stick, an arrow. So he got the right wood and he got the arrow and that's where he would have to get it. And then he asked whether he should go to obtain it. And he looked on the ball and his father looked on and did tremble exceedingly at the words because there was a new writing on them, which was plain to read. So he goes up into the top of the mountain, which is where you find this type of game, enough to feed the family according to the directions which were given on the ball. I did slay wild beasts and obtain food for our families. How great was their joy when he stumbles into camp bearing this stuff. They did humble themselves before the Lord. And from that time, we did travel nearly the same course. They just kept that almost due east, slightly south course, that we might tarry for a space of time. Notice, this is the way they did it. They would pitch their tents and tarry for a space of time. That's why it would take them eight years. It was a strenuous going. They would tarry and rest. And uh, Ishmael died in his place called, was died in a place called Nahum. Now, the Arabic word Nahum means to mourn, and Nahma is a graveyard, so obviously a place called Nahum would be the best place to bury him, wouldn't it? Nahma means, means to mourn. And, uh, the daughters of Ishmael, and also this is the characteristic of the Jewish as well. I left home the book I was going to read, for which I suppose you can be grateful. But it tells you, I assure you, it tells you in that there book, that uh, it's always, whenever a person dies among the Arabs, among the ancient Hebrews, the daughters and only the daughters who have the privilege of mourning, anciently. 
And they used to, later on, they hired professional male mourners and things like that, but in the early time that was unthinkable. It was the mothers and the daughters, but specifically the daughters who mourned for the dead, both at the burial and, and at the funeral. And from mourning they went to murmuring. You see, you were to blame for all this, is what they come around to, the same daughters, you see. But you notice the daughters of Ishmael, following their Ishmael custom, mourned exceedingly because of the loss of their fathers. And, of course, I say that reminds them of other things. They did murmur against my father for bringing this whole thing on them. And against my father and also against me, says the next verse. He's, they have it in for him, too, now. And now the uh, Laman and Lemiosi are are familiar with the practices of desert communities. Everybody are. Is what we have in these verses 36 and 37 and 38 would come right out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, wouldn't it? This is the sort of thing they're doing. But we know, as, I, as we say from the Nahal Kaver, the caves there, that they were going back from very early times, long before this fall of Jerusalem. People were fleeing to the caves and establishing communities in the wilderness to make straight his ways. After all, doesn't Isaiah say that? We've gone, go into the wilderness, prepare a highway for the Lord, make straight his ways, and so forth. That's what they were doing. And this is what the people at Qumran said they were doing. And Lehi sa uh, Nephi said in 1921, he says, I read Isaiah to my people to compare them with us, that we might, that might be for their profit and learning. It compare all the things in Isaiah with our own situation. So this is one of those recurrent scenarios. They're familiar with this going out in the desert to prepare when things are bad at Jerusalem. And so they say, let us slay our brother, also our brother Nephi, our father, also our brother Nephi, they're going pretty far, who was taken upon him to be our ruler and our teacher, who are his elder brethren. That's what they couldn't stand. The law of uh, seniority is very strict among the Jews. And to give a firstborn uh, uh, second place to another was a grave offense. They was, you must almost say they were legally in their rights. I know some family cases that are very pointed on that. He, he tells us these things, they say in the next verse, and he worketh many things by his cunning arts that he may deceive our eyes, thinking perhaps he may lead us away into some strange wilderness, some unoccupied patch of the desert to settle down and make their community where he can be the leader the idea, see, to some strange wilderness, and after he has led us away, he has thought to make himself a king and a ruler over us, that he may do with us according to his will and pleasure, and in this manner did my brother Laman stir up their hearts to anger. Now, Laman leads it because he's the oldest, and he felt he should be the leader. He's felt it all along. He's mortally offended by giving the job not just to Laman, but to Lemuel, but to, at the time, the youngest son of all, Nephi, that he should should be the leader. So he says, just like one of these, go out into the desert to establish, set up, well, you have the teacher of righteousness, you see, and then you have the star in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Damascus Covenant, you have the people, and you have the, uh, and you have also uh, the, uh, the Dregvant, the teacher of the lie, who leads another community, a wrong one. So these teachers and leaders, these communities always centered around a particularly strong leader, as you have in the Book of Mormon, Alma's community, Ammon's community, and so forth, around a particularly strong person. Uh, but the voice of the Lord came and spoke many words to them and did speak, uh, the voice of the Lord came and did speak many words to them and did chasten them exceedingly. Well, now, how? Uh, it was through Lehi or Nephi. He says, he had chastened them exceedingly and after they were chastened by the voice of the Lord, they did turn away and repent of their sins. What would make them do that? Well, it's obviously what happened. 
Nephi revealed their plot. He def deflated Laban. See, Laban was the leader. Laban is trying to stir them up. And when he's exposed and what he is up to, even patricide, this sort of thing, then he's gone too far. And then and he's definitely deflated. It was a very shameful thing which he proposed when they thought it over. And so they did repent of their sins and the Lord blessed us again with food. And then we come to a very interesting statement here. <clears throat> again, nearly eastward and wade through much affliction. That nearly eastward meant the Rubal Khali, the worst desert in the world, worse, worse than the Sahara, as a matter of fact. There are spots in the Sahara. But the Rubal Khali has nothing, and they, they waded through much affliction. You can believe it, going through there. And we did live on raw meat, and our women, see, they had to preserve it. It, dried, it was dried raw meat. The game he got in the mountains, probably, they kept it with them. And, uh, but their women were strong, and they still had children. And this is a noted phenomenon among Bedouin women. They do, they do all the work. They pitch the tents. They make the fires. They do the cooking. They do everything. And uh, they're amazingly strong. And here's a reflection that's a very important one here in the third verse. If it so be that the children of men keep... Nephi uses this... <coughs> Uh, this teaching on a number of occasions. And he says here, If it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he doth nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he's commanded them. Wherefore, he did provide them with the means. Now, if the Lord... We once had to memorize that passage where Nephi says, I will go and do what the Lord commanded, because he doesn't command if you can't do it. And But here it says, if you make the effort, if he's given you commandments, he'll be responsible and provide the means if you make the effort here. So we can't get out of things like the word of wisdom or tithing or even the law of consecration by saying, well, it's not very workable now, so we'll put it off to a while and then it might work then. Uh, we'll defer it until a later time. The Lord says, if you, I will make it possible to do that thing if you will make a real effort. We haven't made a real effort on some of the things. Yes? Uh, the, the term sojourn in the wilderness, is mm -hmm. that any kind of unusual wording? At least it seems to me it's... Sojourn, uh, sojournara, means to spend a day or two in a place. It's, it's to sojourn. The word they use is badayavitu. It's a very interesting word, too. Uh, it's our word bide. See, so many of those words are the same we have in English uh, that you don't have, say, in any Germanic or Indo-European Indo language, anything like that. But we have them. The Egyptians have them. We have them. The Hebrews have them. The word like bide. See, our word is a booth. You abide in a booth. A booth is a, something you sling over a house just to stay in for the night. See, that's what a booth is, a testimony of a booth. It's a temporary house thrown together because you abide there. Abide with me to tide. You ask him to abide. It means just a temporary stay. It's a mansio. Uh, does that make sense to you in this context that they're sojourning in this? Well, if you're not staying here forever, wherever you're not staying forever, you're sojourning. If you ever intend to move on, it's just a sojourning, you see. We're just sojourning here as far as that goes. Uh, and uh, yes, but it means to stay for a while, but not permanently. That's something else, you see. I hope we don't have to sojourn in the celestial kingdom, but uh, I'm glad we just have to sojourn here. And he'll provide them. Notice says he will. He did provide the means while we did sojourn in the wilderness. He will provide the means. I know people who have used so much clever and sophisticated math on their tithing, uh, as if the Lord couldn't provide the means if they just go ahead and pay it. And notice here's this uh, key statement, fourth verse. We spent eight years in the wilderness. That's how long it took them. And we call the plain bountiful. Oh, I've had these pictures before of the 
of the Kara Mountains. When you came down to the cor corner there where it said Kara Mountains, uh, there's some pictures of the woods in the distance, and they're nice, they're flourishing. Well, you don't expect them. Uh, Captain uh, Thomas, Bertram Thomas, when he came out of that as recently as 1930 and discovered them from the desert side, he said, it was it completely bowled him over. Nobody expected anything like that would be there. All of a sudden, whoof, there it is. You see. And uh, we have some phenomena here like that. You, you come upon a thing that you never expect. Uh, Havasu, you know, down in the Grand Canyon. When you Years ago, there was nothing there. It was an Indian place and no camps or anything there. When you came upon that, it was just staggering. It's the same sort of thing here. Uh, well, anyway, the land bountiful, and the wild honey. And we beheld the sea and called it Iriantum. There's a, an Egyptian writing, a very important one, read in all the temples every morning, uh, in which that name Iriantum is, is used for the sea. It's a very interesting name. We won't go into it. However, and they stayed in Bountiful for many days. They didn't know where they were going to sail. They thought they'd reached a happy land. Now, this is a place where we could really have a community. We could really get something going here. Eight years away from anybody else, Nephi could really take over if that was his idea. And then came the thunderbolt. The Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou shalt construct a ship. What, me construct a ship, he said. He didn't know anything about ships. Uh, and then he told me whether I, I should go to get the oar to make the tools and construct a ship after the manner which thou hast shown unto me. Uh, no time to experiment. He went straight ahead with it. The Lord told me where I could find the oar. He couldn't waste time exploring. And he made a bellows. He knew about that. See, remember how the boys are attracted. They, they admire the fine workmanship on the, on the handle of, the, uh, of Lehi's, of Laban's sword. They're, they're connoisseurs because they have precious things. He always says precious things of gold and metal and, and uh, bronze and so forth, the, the brass plates and things, precious workmanship. They were struck by the beautiful workmanship on that brass ball and so forth. So as, as a rich merchant in the Orient, the one thing you would understand is the value of precious metals and workmanship and good workmanship, and they recognize it. And he'd know you can't work with metals without a bellows, and he'd certainly know about that and how to make it, and they do, did very well. Uh, and the Lord had not suffered that we should suffer make, uh, suffered that we should make much fire in the wilderness, see, because it would give away their position. That was very, remember, they were always moving until they got through Balkali. They were always moving through occupied territory, and they were always trespassing, and that's why the Arabs are always raiding and always at war. They're always killing each other, and you always have to have the veg, you have to have the Gaza. Our word rage comes from that, the Gaza. It's your obligation, your sacred obligation, to raid and plunder the tamp, tamp camp of anybody whom naturally you consider as trespassing in your land, which you can show by tribal's records was really their land a long time back they can show, and so this goes on forever. So you don't build much fire. This is made very clear by Doughty and other writers on the subject. When you're traveling in any dubious territory, don't either by day or night, because the Lord said, I'll be your light in the wilderness, and I'll play the way before you, so you don't give your way, self away by the smoke, and you don't give your way away by the light. There is a book by, now the time is up, uh, Hilton's, uh, Lynn Hilton, he, uh, in order to trace Lehi's trail here, what tells us here what had happened, uh, the challenge given to Dr. Lynn Hilton and his wife, Hope, by the Ensign Magazine, they asked him to do this, they financed the tour. Yeah, they didn't have to because he, he opened a pump company in Cairo to sell pump for irrigation, to sell mostly pumps to the Arabs over here as an excuse to get him into the country because it's all forbidden, you see. Uh, if you're not a Muslim and so forth, you can't go into Oman or anything like that. That's all closed country. But as the 
head of a, a pump selling uh, outfit, uh, which was uh, in considerable demand among the Arabs and sheikhs, he could get himself into these lands and take this trip of uh, Lehi's and, and search Lehi's trail. And went to all that trouble just so he could trace Lehi's trail. But as I see now, yes, we'll have to go now. But anyway, he says here, he was asked to do this. They traveled extensively in the Middle East and have a business interest there. That's the pump company. We asked them, quote, to follow the steps of Lehi from Jerusalem to the land called Bountiful, if you can discover where it might have been. It's reported their adventures, published in the year 1976, beginning in October. And they went and traveled, and they show us some, they had some marvelous experiences, followed right down along the coast. They finally got to the place where they build boats, and uh, it's interesting they build them now the way they always built them, because after all, we have boat very accurate pictures of boats, both Asiatic boats and Nile boats. And well, for example, the famous ivory handle, an ivory knife handle from Egypt from the First Dynasty shows a battle between those boats very vividly and how they were made. And uh, some were made without using any nails at all by tying them, lashing them together with hemp, which you can get from those trees incidentally. And uh, the other was made by metal. But remember, he had a forge and he had metals and he could have, uh, have used nails and bolts to, to hold his ship together. But it was a new kind, and the men were very much impressed when they saw it, because there's nothing that impresses a person like a well-made boat. And when he succeeded in, remember, well, we'll have to take that later, but we'll have to go faster than this too, won't we? Before we get to the, to the heavy stuff.